Jeff's Midweek Bible Study, a verse-by-verse teaching through the Bible with Pastor Jeff Lassane. We hope this podcast encourages your faith, and now, here's Pastor Jeff. Greetings to everyone, and welcome to the Midweek Bible Study Podcast. We've been going through the Gospel of Mark verse-by-verse in a series that we're calling Good News for Busy People. Our series title reminds us that Mark's gospel is the shortest and the most fast-paced of the four gospels. In this particular message, we've reached the last section of Mark chapter 8, and we're going to camp here in the final five verses. What we'll find before us in this passage is an invitation from Jesus. Now, it's safe to say that we receive invitations of all kinds all the time, invitations to meet for coffee or to like someone's Facebook page, or to attend a birthday party, to go to church, to come over for dinner, to join a meeting, to meet up for a movie, to attend a wedding, or whatever it may be. The invitations are many and the calendars are full. Sometimes it's awkward and tricky to decline an invitation. Someone invites you to meet them for coffee or for lunch, and truth be told, Your honest answer would be, no, thank you. I've got other things I need to do or that I would rather do. But you can't say that because it'll hurt that person's feelings. So instead, you might say, I can't make it. I've got something else going at that time. Then they say, no problem. How about a different day? And you respond, let me check my calendar and I'll get back to you. For some, that's code for I'm not going to get back to you in the hope that you'll get busy and forget about it. As a pastor who has conducted many weddings, I know that for couples who send out invitations, they get frustrated uh, for the reception because oftentimes maybe half the people take the time to RSVP. So they make their plans uh, to provide food at the reception for those that responded, and then another 20 guests decide to show up. I read about a wedding invitation that had three boxes you could check under the heading, Please RSVP. The first box read, yes, we look forward to attending. The second box you could check read, sorry, we're unable to attend. And the third box read, we can't commit, but we'll probably just show up anyway. Well, here before us then is an invitation from Jesus. It's an invitation to follow him and along with that, what is required and what it costs to follow him. You know, invitations with requirements are not unusual. Maybe you get invited to a special event, a special 25th or 50th wedding anniversary celebration, something like that. And the invitation might say attire is semi-formal, and it might also say no children, please, or whatever. Um, It's an invitation with requirements. In the church, most of us are accustomed to gospel invitations, Sadly, there's an ongoing debate over the giving of invitations in church services. There are those who say that giving an invitation to trust Christ for salvation is not biblical, and therefore people should not be encouraged to walk forward or raise their hand. They should just, you know, talk to the Lord privately in their own heart and call out to Him. Others will give a gospel presentation, and then they will invite people to 
raise their hand as an indication of their desire to follow Jesus, or perhaps they'll invite people to walk forward to pray with the pastor or the preacher. To those who claim that it's unbiblical to extend gospel invitations, I would wholeheartedly disagree. At the end of Matthew 11, Jesus gave a public invitation, and he said, "'Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest.'" Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That was an open, public gospel invitation of salvation from Jesus to all of the people gathered around listening to him. And then over in Acts chapter 2, Peter stood up on the day of Pentecost and gave a public proclamation of the gospel. He spoke of the miraculous signs and wonders, the evidence of Jesus being God, and then also made a declaration about his death, burial, and resurrection. In other words, the gospel. And when the people in the crowd were convicted in their hearts by the Holy Spirit, they called out to Peter and the disciples asking, what shall we do? Or in other words, how shall we respond to what you've told us? Peter replied, repent in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And with many words, Peter exhorted them saying, be saved from this perverse generation. And we read there in Acts 2 that those who gladly received the word and then got water baptized were about 3,000 people. In my opinion, the problem with gospel invitations has less to do with invitations being given and much more to do with the presentation of the gospel itself. In other words, if people are simply invited to follow Jesus in order to receive a happy and blessed life, then the problem is not the invitation, it's the lack of a genuine gospel presentation. Hey, there can be no understanding of the good news unless there is first an understanding of the bad news. And with that, making a commitment to follow Jesus is much more than just saying a prayer and then returning to your everyday life. The Bible declares that if anyone is in Christ, they are an altogether new person, new creation, forever changed by God. And as Jesus explains in these final verses here in Mark 8, in his invitation, there is a cost and sacrifice that comes with following him. So let's go ahead and read what Jesus said here, and let's pick up in verse 34. When he had called the people to himself with his disciples also, he said to them, Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and then loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. The title of this message asks the question, What is your soul worth? If we could read only one passage from Mark's gospel, then this would be that passage. The words of Jesus here are for everybody. They're for pastors and preachers who have the responsibility of presenting the gospel properly, bad news, good news, all of it. 
But this message and this invitation that Jesus gives is also for Christians who need to understand the true meaning of discipleship and following the Lord, as well as properly understanding how to share the gospel with others. And these words are also for lost sinners who are living for the things of this world with no consideration of eternity. Now, we want to keep this passage in its context, so we remember that just before Jesus spoke these words, he had asked the disciples who they said that he was, who they believed that he was. Peter responded on behalf of the disciples, saying, you are the Christ, or Messiah, the Son of the living God. Now that the disciples were finally beginning to understand who Jesus truly was, our Lord told them for the first time about how he would be rejected and then suffer and die. As we touched on in our last podcast message, this announcement from Jesus did not sit well with the disciples and their expectations or the Jewish people for that matter. The Jewish hope and expectation was that Messiah would come, overthrow the yoke of Rome, and establish his kingdom here on earth. He would then rule and reign from Jerusalem where the Jewish people would be his favored subjects. So when Peter then took Jesus aside and tried to rebuke him for talking nonsense about suffering and dying, Jesus turned around and rebuked Peter, and in actuality, he rebuked the devil who was speaking through Peter. Jesus did not come the first time to defeat the rule of Rome, but rather to defeat the rule of sin and death. And in order for God to accomplish this, his only begotten son, Jesus, would need to suffer and die to atone for our sins. R.C. Sproul points out that the disciples may have also been thinking, wait a minute, if the, if the Messiah has to be rejected, suffer and die, what does that mean for us, the disciples of the Messiah? Well, Jesus confirmed their suspicions and told them, and oh, by the way, if you follow me, there's a cross for you as well. Now let's look more closely here at our five verses. And in verse 34, we read, When Jesus had called the people to himself with his disciples also, he said to them, whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So we understand that Jesus was speaking to the crowds of people following him as well as to his disciples. This was an open public invitation to anyone and everyone to follow him, but to also understand the true cost of following him. He wanted his disciples to understand this, and he wanted the people who were listening to him to understand this. His words then were for the saved and for the unsaved, for those who were already committed and for those who were considering a commitment. So what is required to follow Jesus? Well, first off, he says that a genuine believer and disciple needs to deny themselves. Well, what does that mean? The Greek verb for deny means to disown and to disassociate. So we think, okay, we can do that. Who do you want us to disown and disassociate with? And the answer is you. Jesus calls you to deny yourself, and he calls me to deny myself. Remember when Peter denied the Lord? He swore an oath saying, I do not know the man. In essence, Peter said, I disown him and I disassociate myself from him. And that's a picture, what Peter did, of what the word deny means. Fortunately for Peter, he was a genuine, though overconfident believer 
who had placed himself into a bad situation. And when confronted about following Jesus in the heat of the moment, he panicked and then uh, denied the Lord. But that wasn't who Peter really was. And afterwards, he genuinely repented and was forgiven. What we're denying then is the old way of living, the old way of thinking, the old way of understanding. We must surrender ourselves completely to Jesus as Lord. So then we take all of our goals, all of our plans, all of our aspirations, all of our desires, and we surrender them to Jesus saying, not my will, but your will be done. The gospel costs us nothing, but it requires everything from us. Now, the good news is that when we're saved and when we become new creations in Christ, then our goals and plans and desires quickly begin to change and line up more and more with what God has for us. And think about this. What are we really denying when we deny ourselves? We're denying the old, unsaved person that we were who made tons of bad decisions and who was a hopeless slave to sin, and now we're surrendering everything to a holy and loving God who wants to give us eternal life. As Paul wrote in Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Then Jesus says, and take up the cross. Now, obviously, Jesus had not been crucified yet. Even so, the disciples and everyone in that crowd knew exactly what he meant. All of them had numerous times seen the victims of crucifixion carrying their cross to their place of execution. The Jewish historian Josephus wrote about the many crucifixions by the Romans there in the first century. Just during the lifetime of Jesus, some 30,000 Jews were crucified, not counting the other non-Jews, according to Josephus. Many of the crucified victims were placed along the main road so that everyone could see them hanging there on their crosses. It was Rome's way of saying, don't mess with us, and it was their warning to submit and obey. So when Jesus said, take up your cross, everyone knew what he meant. Even more than denying self, it meant dying to self. Since a a cross clearly represented execution, it'd be like saying, grab your lethal injection needle and follow me, or pick up your electric chair and follow me. As it turned out, all of the 11 saved disciples that walked with Jesus died a martyr's death for their faith, except for John, the brother of James. But even so, in his case, he suffered greatly for his faith. The other 10, Peter, James, Andrew, Matthew, and all the others, they were all martyred for their faith. The records of their faith, their ministry, and their deaths is recorded in Fox's Book of Martyrs, along with many others like the Apostle Paul. We're constantly seeing believers in other parts of the world today being killed for their faith. So far, for us living in the United States, that's not the case, but who's to say that won't change at some point? So the cross represents shame, suffering, and persecution for our faith. Many believers today are met with hostility and rejection by family and friends, neighbors, and coworkers. In our society today, for many unsaved people, the word Christian means that you're hateful, bigoted, and intolerant. You have been and you will continue to be misunderstood and misrepresented, you know, just like Jesus was. As you walk in the light, it offends the unsaved world that walks in darkness. 
Now, if you're thinking to yourself, wait a minute, I didn't sign up for this. Well, yes, you did. If you're a genuine and committed follower of Jesus Christ. That's what the Lord says right here in our passage. Either we deny ourselves and die to ourselves, or otherwise, what? We compromise our faith and live to please ourselves. As someone well said, a faith that costs nothing accomplishes nothing. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 3 of the Christian life, if we build our lives on the wrong foundation, the wrong motives, worldly desires, and selfish ambitions, then at the judgment seat of Christ, all of that hay, wood, and stubble in our lives will be burnt up. We'll have nothing to show for our lives as believers. Then after denying ourselves and then dying to self as we take up the cross comes the command of Jesus to follow him. Following Jesus means much more than just going to church on Sunday and having daily devotions. It describes a life of obedience to Christ. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. And of course, we'll never do that perfectly, but we should be able to do it consistently by the power of the Holy Spirit. Later on in the first epistle of John, we read, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. When Jesus says, follow me, here at the end of verse 34, the Greek verb he uses describes a continuous action. So we're continuously following him in obedience, day after day, year after year. As Eugene Peterson put it, Christian discipleship is a long obedience in the same direction. Then in verse 35, Jesus makes a paradoxical statement, whoever desires to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. Listen, if your goal is to save yourself by denying Christ, then all of your efforts to save yourself will cost you your life. Jim Elliott was a missionary in the 1950s who was killed by the very natives he was attempting to reach with the gospel. Elliott and four others were evangelizing in Ecuador when they were ambushed by some local natives. Elliot and the others had guns in their possessions, but they had already agreed together that they would not kill an unsaved native in order to save themselves from being killed. And so they died together. In time, many of those local natives were saved by the gospel. Sometime before he was killed, Elliot had written in his journal, listen to what he wrote, He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. In the New Testament, both John the Baptist and Stephen, the first martyr of the early church, understood this clearly. Then Jesus continues here and he says, For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Christian music artist Toby Mack sings a song you probably heard. and It says, I don't want to gain the whole world and lose my soul. You know, in different novels and movies and television shows, there's been a reoccurring storyline of someone selling their soul to the devil or making a deal with the devil for whatever it is that they wanted, whether it was popularity, possessions, power, prestige, whatever it might be. Well, in real life, millions of people have made some similar deals with the devil without even realizing it. By rejecting Christ and living for the world, which is ruled by the devil, they've done exactly that. A life can be filled with many things, but without God, it's an empty life. And in the end, when death comes, their soul ends up in hell and in torment. 
We've all heard unsaved people laugh when we try to share the gospel with them and say they would rather party with their friends in hell than go to heaven. In their minds, of course, hell is some sort of a gigantic backyard barbecue with kegs of beer and loud, raucous music. But as the Bible clearly reveals, hell is a place of separation and complete darkness with unending anguish. When Jesus spoke of a selfish and self-centered rich man dying and going to Hades, he described that man being in torment. Interestingly, that man begged for two things in that story in Luke 16. First of all, for some cold water for his thirst and torment. And then he begged that someone could be sent back up to earth to warn his family members before they ended up in that same place of torment. For those who believe and think that hell will be one giant party with their friends, the reality is that they will be begging that their family and friends will not join them there. Jesus told another story about a wealthy man who lived for the world called the parable of the rich fool. In Luke 12, Jesus spoke about that rich man who had so many crops that he decided to build bigger barns. Then the man said to himself, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years, so take it easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God came to him and said, You fool, this very night your soul is required of you, and now who's going to get all of your possessions? I haven't met many people possessed by demons, but I've met a lot of people possessed by their possessions. As Jesus asks, What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? When Jesus rebuked the church at Laodicea in Revelation, he said to them, Because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, you do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. There is an eternal difference between earthly riches and our spiritual riches in Christ. Here in Mark, Jesus goes on to ask, What will a man give in exchange for his soul? Wow, that's a question. What could possibly be so wonderful or so worthwhile or so valuable in this world that a person would be willing to spend eternity suffering in torment? See, the problem is they don't believe in hell or in God or in heaven for that matter. Here's a question for you. How much would you sell your soul for? I'm confident that most, if not everyone listening to this podcast would respond, I would never, ever sell my soul for any amount. But if you went out on the street and conducted a survey, let's say you asked 100 people that question, I'm also confident that many of them would name their amount. I'd sell my soul for a million dollars or $10 million or whatever their price might be. The bottom line is they would be willing to sell their soul if they could. So here's another question. How much did Jesus pay for your soul? Another couple of parables that Jesus spoke, which illustrate what Jesus is saying here in our passage, are the parable of the hidden treasure and the pearl of great price. It almost sounds like titles from the series of Hardy Boy books I read as a kid, but they're not. Uh, The parables that Jesus gave, those two parables, uh, he spoke back to back in Matthew 13. Now, they have different details, but a similar theme, and they both make the same point. In the parable of the hidden treasure, Jesus describes a man who discovers a great treasure in a field. 
He then rehides it and afterwards goes and sells everything he has in order to have enough money to purchase that field and make that treasure his. In the next similar parable of great price, a man is searching for beautiful pearls and he comes across a single pearl of massive value. And like that other man, he sells off everything he owns in order to have enough money to purchase that single great pearl. So both parables make the same point, and in both parables, Jesus lets us know that he's talking about the kingdom of heaven. The great treasure and the great pearl both represent salvation and eternal life in heaven. And in both cases, when those men discovered it and understood its true value, they were both willing to give up everything else in their lives in order to possess it. And that's what Jesus is talking about here in Mark 8, the cost of following him. A genuine disciple and follower of Jesus, then, is willing to give up anything and everything to follow him. Even if it costs us our comfort, our job, our home, our possession, our family and friends, and yes, even our lives. As Paul wrote in Philippians 1, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. The true gospel message is not follow Jesus and he'll make you happy. The true gospel message is that Jesus' salvation and eternal life are far more valuable than anything else in this temporary world. And therefore, any and every amount of denying ourselves or dying to ourselves is worth it. If we really believe the gospel and recognize its value, we'll gladly give up everything for it. Then Jesus sums up this section by saying, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. I think the key word in this verse is ashamed. It all boils down to whether a person is ashamed of their sins or ashamed of Jesus Christ. Like that tax collector in Luke 18, the person who says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, is the person who will receive grace, forgiveness, and eternal life. In Romans 1.16, Paul wrote, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. In closing, these words from Jesus are an invitation, an invitation to follow him. Along with that, these words of Jesus are a consideration, a consideration for what it truly means to follow him. And finally, these words of Jesus are a warning, a warning that if we're ashamed to follow him, then he'll be ashamed of us when he returns. When Jesus returns the second time, he will come in the glory of God and with all the holy angels. That will be a wonderful day, or it could be a frightful day, depending on our response to Jesus and the gospel. So what is your soul worth to you? The Bible tells us that our soul was so valuable to God that he sent his only son to the earth to give up everything, including his life, so that we might be saved. By faith, we can believe that and follow Christ no matter what it costs us. Or we can choose to follow the world, enjoy whatever temporary pleasures it might offer. But I hope and pray that you will follow Jesus who created you, who loves you so much that he died for you, and who wants to give you eternal life with him in heaven. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.